So I'd like to introduce you to the person that became known as the Smiling Prophet. Make this happen. Work. There we go. So this, I've talked about James Luther Adams in a, a few moments before, but I just wanted to, I'm going to talk a little bit more about his experience today and really wanted to give you a visual because this is, for those of us who knew him in person, this is as much as a way to kind of understand his spirit and his presence as anything I might say. Um, so this was James Luther Adams. He was one of the most thoughtful and influential theologians of the 20th century. He's a minister, a scholar, a professor, a storyteller, an expansive and welcoming host. He was born in 1901, in the course of his life became known to his peers as JLA. Uh, and he died in 1994. He was a witness and participant in so much of the 20th century, nearly the entirety of it. He brought warmth and depth to his examination and explanation of liberal religion. He was a generous mentor who would rather talk and meet with people than organize his papers. His students organized his papers for him. He came from a rigid and apocalyptic Christianity, and left as soon as he could. He became a fierce critic of religion in his early years, but then in the course of his school, realized that his passion for theology and living our values ended up bringing him into a new ministry. So here is James Luther Adams. I just wanted to offer a little bit of him today. I want to focus a bit on Adam's early story as a young adult. Um, at the age of 26, he graduated. He had graduated from Harvard Divinity School. Uh, he was about to start a ministry in Massachusetts, a parish ministry, but he also visited Germany for a while. And this is his account, the beginning of his um, evolution of his social concern. He said, in the summer of 1927, six years after Hitler became head of the movement and six years before the party came into power, I visited Nuremberg at just at the time when thousands of people, young and old, were in the city for an annual Nazi festival. On the day of the great parade in the streets of Nuremberg, history as it was being made at that juncture gave me personally a traumatic jolt. Standing in the jostling crowd, watching the thousands of singing Nazis in their innumerable brass bands as they passed the street. Out of curiosity as to what they would say, I asked a bystander, uh, the meaning of the swastika that was everywhere evident. And within a few minutes, I found myself in a heated conversation with more and more people joining in, particularly when the question turned to the Jewish question. And as I bore down in the argument against the defenders of Nazism, Asking more and more insistent questions, I was suddenly seized from by the elbows from behind and pulled vehemently out of the crowd. No one made an effort to help me. I immediately thought I was being taken into custody. 
I could not see who it was um, after extricating me from the crowd, marching me down vigorously a side street and then turning up into an alley. On reaching the dead end of the alley, my host, a young German working man in his 30s, wheeled me around and shouted at me, don't you know, don't you know that when you watch a parade in Germany today, you either keep your mouth shut or you get your head bashed in. 1927. Adam says, my palpitation mounted even higher at that moment and I was all the more puzzled when my captor then smiled and said, don't be frightened. I have saved you. Saved me from what? I said. From being sandbagged. And about five minutes more of that argument on the curb, they would have knocked you out flat on the pavement. The man was an unemployed worker and an anti-Nazi. He immediately invited me to take dinner with him at his home. I accepted gladly. Adams begins with this story as he explains how values and actions have real ripples and consequences depending on what we do and what we don't do. Our question in this moment is what shall we do? We have rising efforts to limit free speech, we have rising efforts to curtail any conversation about the diversity in our society that is not going away. And every week there is another example of how this is showing up in our world. How the Unitarian Universalist Church in Birmingham, Alabama is now under attack for hosting a wonderful event. That drag show. The minister herself is the target of violent threats. We have further efforts in Florida, Texas, Idaho, Montana, and more to erase trans and gender expansive people from society, from existence. And this coming week, Friday, in case you hadn't heard, there is the protest being organized to respond to the presence of the governor of Florida, who is continuing his campaign to remove any conversation of race, diversity, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, asexual plus, from children, from families, from education, from libraries. Come to the Rally for Democracy on Friday, downtown. In the rising wave of authoritarianism that's limiting medical and resource access as well as language and the full range of diversity and manifestation that we are already here, there is, in some ways, this is a reactive event 
to the truth that it's not going to be suppressed, but boy, we got to live through it in the first place. How shall this congregation show up? How will we live with ourselves if we declare a thirst for justice and wonder whether we should put something of ourselves on the line? How we show up says a lot about our relevance, not just the mission. Let me add another note about where Adams continued with his thought. In 1935 to 36, Adams returned to Germany for a year, studying, listening, questioning people of different and opposite opinions, not just the ones that he agreed with. He says, The experience of Nazism induced a kind of conversion. I recall a conversation with German psychiatrist and philosopher Karl Jaspers at his home one day in Heidelberg in 1936. I asked him what he deemed to be the contemporary significance of liberal Christianity. And he replied with unwanted vehemence, religious liberalism has no significance. It has zwang, no costing commitment. And I pressed myself upon the question. And Jaspers responded, if fascism should arise in the States, what in your past performance could constitute a pattern or framework of resistance? And Adam said he could only give a feeble answer to the question. He said, my principal political activities had been the reading of the paper and voting. I had preached sermons on the depression in or in defense of strikers. Occasionally, I uttered protest against censorship in Boston, but I had no adequate conception of citizenship participation. What was known as the Confessing Church at the time in Germany was one of the few bodies that put themselves on the line. The liberal churches were, in a word, feeble. And Adam's response from that experience in that conversation when he returned to the States was to organize as he continued to be an academic and a theologian. He was part of the founding of the independent voters of Illinois. He became a doorbell ringer, a precinct lead, consulted with thinkers of the time, and he said in that experience, there was nothing intrinsically unusual about this, his activity. It was only unusual for the Protestant churchmen or clergymen. that even in this country as well, the clergy were preaching a good word, but not necessarily doing all that much. Adams points out that how we gather, how we proclaim ourselves must also lead into how we organize, how we conduct, 
for all that liberal religion and Unitarian Universalism has been a powerful voice for justice, for examining oppression, for workers' rights, as we honored May Day earlier this week, for advocating for the environment and much more. There is so much more in the task. One of the great strengths and features of a liberal approach to religion is the potential for individuals to explore and grow, to discover what they hold true, to recover from a difficult emotional past, to encounter others on the journey, to revise and renew again and again. This is wonderful. We need to preach inherent worth and dignity every single time because it matters. And we've also been subject to the critique of being so focused on the individual that we end up being accused of saying, you can believe whatever you want without consequence. And this is not the case. Adams gives us five smooth stones to help define some clear theological positions about the nature of truth, the importance of gathering, the importance of gathering freely and without coercion, our call to keep learning and growing and our call and reminder to remember that we are living in an ultimate hope, not one of fear and judgment. The individual is the increment, and there is so much more. We are called to be gathered in community for what the community can accomplish with commitment and sacrifice, and as Adams puts it, conversion to be converted to the struggle of the world. And in so gathering, it allows us far more power to fulfill our greater purposes, of which every one of us has a part. How many times has there been that conversation? If only a thousand people had fought back against the Nazis, what a difference it would have made. Let us not be asking that question. Let us not be asking that question in this moment. Let us go forth. And the reminder, what I also appreciate in Adams is the reminder that when we make room for each other to be protesting, to be resisting, we also become more pluralistic, more diverse, more inclusive. The lack of, the lack of resistance results in less diversity in so many ways. If this is part of our commitment, we must show up. As I said about a month ago, Peoria has a chance, for example, to become more lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, intersex, asexual, plus welcoming. In addition to addressing racism and the related economics of that struggle. But also that the work, the work of this is not actually about any one particular congregation or faith community or any one institution. This is a larger question. It's not about perpetuating the existence of this particular institution. That's not our agenda in that moment. Our agenda is because it's the right thing to do, to do good, to be good, to be 
good again and again. The congregation is celebrating 180 years since the first sermon delivered in the courthouse in downtown Peoria by the Reverend Aaron Kinney on May 5th, 1843. This has been a community for so many people for getting towards two centuries. And it does so not for itself alone. We're more than a lecture series, more than a class. I will even dare to say it, we are more than coffee together. I know, right? I said it. More than being with like-minded people, we must take it into the world to live into those smooth stones that there is no immaculate conception of virtue. If you want to see the good, you must do the good. That we gather freely that there's always more truth out there and that in doing so and being part of this, we are here for the long game of hope, ultimately hope. In a moment when people are having a hard time trusting institutions, including ones like this, let our return to purpose and practice show the merit of what we say we believe. Adams saw nearly the entirety of the 20th century. He welcomed people into his life, responded when called and invited to keep questioning, and shared his truth, hard won by experience and a lot of arguments and questions. He died in July 1994, just as I was moving to Boston to go to Harvard Divinity School. I had the good fortune to attend his memorial. And he calls us. He keeps calling us. What he learned in his experience is not done of the time. It keeps calling us to be in the prophethood of all believers, all of us, empowered to gather and seek and act and hope in the pursuit of a more just world, to put faith in action. So let us do so. Let us breathe and push and go forth, taking a risk and truly making a difference. Amen. <laughs>